Carl Sagan once said, If you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are talking about an introduction to world building. I know, I know. We said it was going to be expansions today, and we do want to talk about that, and we have a lot to rant on. But we really decided that what we were talking about when we were discussing coming up with that episode was just what expansions we like. And that's not what we wanted to do. We wanted to talk about why expansions exist, what makes them good, what makes them bad. And really, if the episode was just going to be us talking about expansions, we might as well just like direct you to our Amazon reviews so that you can see what we like and don't like. We'd really like to give you a little more than that. This topic, however, we're very excited about today. So we're talking about world building today. What is world building? Why would we want to world build? Well, world building is creating the setting for a game. We are going to focus on RPGs today, but you do world building when you create any game. I mean, honestly, even Candyland has world building involved in it. You've got a world of candy. You know, there's a gumdrop forest and all of these other things. You, you have to have all that. You have to have the setting for your game in order to be able to express the idea behind the game. We're creating the events, history, and world for a story. So there are two major methods of world building. There's the top-down method and the bottom-up method. So let's get started. We're going to talk about the top-down method first. So the top-down method of world building is you focus on the big, broad strokes. A lot of times when people think about building a world, they think about, oh, building a world. Right. You, you start out with a world itself. And, and one thing that people have done historically when they're making RPG worlds and stuff is things like coffee stain worlds where you say, oh, that coffee stain kind of looks like a continent. I can make a world based on this. We've talked about people who just throw down a handful of dice varying sizes and they just draw shapes around where the dice land and use that as their way of creating their initial land masses for their game. And then, like, start inferring things off the numbers. Like, well, I guess higher numbers could be more developed regions, or maybe maybe geographically higher regions. Who knows? You know, there's all kinds of options for how you can play with that. So there are multiple ways of doing the top-down method. The first one is really just starting with broad strokes. As John said, you could start with the land mass itself. Where are you? A friend of mine likes to start his world building by figuring out what the pantheon is. What are the gods of this world that create the world? Which is interesting because you can actually infer a lot about a culture based on their religious beliefs. I mean, honestly, if we just took the Roman pantheon and with no knowledge of Roman culture, I just walked you through how all the gods behaved and what all the gods wanted out of humans and stuff, you could infer a Rome-like society out of that. Similarly, if you took the uh, Norse gods, the Viking gods, you can infer a sort of clan-based society based on the expectations of those gods, how those gods relate to one another, and what the purviews of those gods are. You understand that herding was important, that raiding was important, that seafaring was all-important. All of these things come together based on just the gods of the setting. So knowing what kind of religion or what kind of spirituality exists in your world setting 
can go a very long way to showing you things about the setting in general. Another one of the broad strokes that you can fill in is just figure out who the different peoples are. There's this country here, there's this country here, there's this country over here. We have the land of the Shire, which is pleasant and peaceful and pastoral. You have the land of Mordor, which is dark and evil and brooding. And then you have all the lands in between. Now, there's, there's an interesting thing where sometimes people will talk with disdain about the fact that humans are used in fantasy saying is like the baseline for everything. And it's just a really quick rant about this, okay? The reason we use humans as the baseline for everything is because we are humans, you might have noticed. So when, whenever we're talking about fantasy races and how they differ from us in real life, we have to talk about it in terms of humanity. So if humans are included in your setting, they kind of have to be the baseline. And I have heard of settings where humans are not used as the baseline. It's kind of it's kind of a weird idea, but I guess it can work. Like uh, like Jacob was telling me a while back about some game setting back back in the bad old days where there's a billion settings and everything just kind of ran off of modified zero D and D rules. But um, there was some setting where humans were not the baseline. It's because we we evolved from primates, so we're the only... I, I think the specific thing he pointed out is that we were the only culture in the universe that thought that a ladder was a reasonable way to get between two locations of different heights. Everyone else was like, that's insane. Why would anyone think that was okay? But we're, we're primate descended. So I guess it could be interesting to look at that from a different lens, but it's weird that people get hung up on like, oh, why are humans the baseline? Why are... Well, because we're humans, because we are the baseline. We have to compare everything to ourselves to some degree. So if we were building a world off of broad strokes, we could start with a large mountain range. I, I love the idea of people stepping out of their homes and seeing a large mountain range. Huge Himalaya, you know, snow-peaked mountains right there. And on the other side is an unknown world. And we could start from there. We could start with the idea that there's this great dividing mountain range in the world. Well, on one side, you have peaceful people who use the mountain as basically their, their fallback point. They stay there and no, nothing's going to come over the mountain to attack them. So they can always fall back and have their back against the mountain. And they are being attacked by, I don't know, like the sea on the uh, other side from this mountain. And the people on the opposite side of the mountain are actually desert dwellers and they have no clue that there's this pastoral society on the other side of this great mountain range we're just jumping in with uh, two feet on this i see just like talking about examples of world building here and it's great we can have that sort of top-down idea of a setting where you say okay well this is going to be where civilization is and this is going to be where a different civilization is and the mountains are the divider and, and that kind of creates an immediate sense of a possible conflict that gives us an immediate idea of what kind of world we could have. Something where the ability to cross that mountain suddenly becomes a meaningful thing. Maybe the mountains are cleft asunder or something. Who knows? But once you remove that obstacle or mitigate that obstacle somehow, that's when you see your dynamic change. And that's a big thing is you are setting up potential with a top-down view. You're setting up a potential world. You're more creating a shell that a setting will eventually be placed inside of. No one, no one can just use Earth as a setting, for example. When we talk about Earth, right? How would you use Earth as a setting? You wouldn't. You'd, you'd have to eventually zero in on something. 
But you can use Earth as a baseline for a saying. You can say it is a place that's mostly covered with water. And you can't drink that water because it's full of salt. It's terrible. Um, and, and, and a lot of it you can't live in either. There's the top and bottom are freaking frozen and the middle is too hot. And it's just, a, this is a terrible setting. But then you can, and I'm just talking about Earth here. We, we have this terrible setting with, with frozen top and a frozen bottom and a hot spot in the middle that you can't really live in either. And then everything interesting happens in these little bands of civilization. Now, another good method of top-down world building is playing a game of Yes And. Now, Yes And is an old improvisation game where someone would come up with an idea. Oh, I'm going to the store. The next person would then, instead of saying, no, 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 there's no, 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 no store. No, the store's closed. The store's closed. There's no store. Yeah, see, that would, that would just ruin it. No, instead, you have to go Yes And. You have to take that and run with it. Uh, yes, and the bus is running late. You know, something like that. You know, going to the store, the bus is running late. They, they would take that and run with it. Yes, and... The, uh, the bus is running late, but my friend does have his old Volkswagen Beetle to try and take me to the store. But it doesn't have enough storage for all the groceries I need. Uh, yes, and you can hold your arms out the window to carry the groceries while you drive along the road with groceries on your lap, and it turns into a debacle. It's a, you know, and you just create these things that build and build on themselves, and that's a good way to do this. Like, we start out with a world like, uh, okay, so it's, it's a, uh, rocky, arid world, and then, uh, you play that game of yes, and with yourself. Like, yeah, yes, and... Uh, I didn't, it wasn't always a rocky, barren world. It used to be covered with water, and it used to be a verdant green world. Yes, and a meteor struck the world to make it become this rocky world. Uh, yes, and, and, a, and an ancient civilization used to live on this world and thrive, and they had advanced technology. Yes, and the only remnants that can be seen by people who aren't from this world is there's like this face that's on the... I'm talking about Mars. Oh, crap. Uh, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> okay, so... Uh... Not only that, there's the next type of top-down world building, layering it up. As soon as you have one of these big broad strokes... Throw in another big broad stroke. You have the geography. Then let's throw in the gods. Then let's throw in a great catastrophe that happened. And you see how these things start to connect. You know, you say things like, okay, I've got these gods. I've got this geography. I noticed that there was like this solitary mountain without other mountains around it. Maybe that that's a mountain inhabited by the gods or a god, you know, that, that some god inhabits this mountain. That makes it a more interesting site already. And now I can see some sort of development from that. You can say that, well, I mean, if... if God lives in the mountain, then everybody kind of hangs out around this mountain, right? At least the worshipers of this God are going to want to hang out around this mountain. This mountain becomes a holy site. Cities start building around this mountain. It becomes a trade hub because of this. And you can see how just from combining geography with one aspect of this pantheon, you immediately begin to have something to build off of. Another great thing to do for top-down world building is imagine an elevator pitch. Imagine you're trying to get your friends to play in this world setting, but you only have a moment to tell them, 
so you say the most important thing. A lot of classic D&D settings can be summed up by their one important thing. It's a desert world where magic eats away at the life force of the world. Oh, Dark Sun's Athos, and that's a great setting, and right there, that pitch, I think that's how it was pitched to me, was it's it's a desert setting where magic has ravaged the world, and, and oh, cool, that sounds really neat. Or you're all adventuring uh, pirates going through space. Oh yeah, Spelljammer. Yeah, Who doesn't yeah. love Spelljammer? Uh, most people, but there's good reason for that. It's, it's actually a great setting in theory. It's just the execution, as we were pointing out earlier when we kind of mentioned Spelljammer. Uh, the execution's a little weak on that one, but it was, uh, it was a really good idea. Or a setting where all of the monsters from Victorian horror are masters of their own realms in which the uh, players are going to adventure. Oh, that's definitely Ravenloft right there. So let's try and come up with something. One important thing. In this world, all of the gods are mortal. The gods are not immortal, but they are powerful enough to be considered gods. That right there shows that people would want vengeance on the gods and that the gods would want to appease the mortals. And once you have all this together, you have a world. Like, let's just go down with what we said. We have this mountain range where there's these two countries on either side. Let's see, we have the mountain where there's the... Yeah, the, the solitary one... mountain, which is which is off from the mountain range, obviously. And that's where a god or the gods dwell. Maybe that's, maybe that's the home of the gods. Kind of like Mount Olympus or, or um, other famous god mountains. And this world used to have great vast technology, but a meteor struck to it. So all magic in this world actually comes from this meteor. Like, it, it's this weird space magic. <laughs> and and you, and you have all this, and you suddenly have this world setting that you kind of want to play in. But what if you don't really want a big world like that? What if you just want to tell one story and you want to, like, zero in immediately? Well, that's where the bottom-up method really comes into its own. Right, and as the name as the name implies, the bottom-up method is the opposite of the top-down method. Top-down method is you try to create the broad strokes and then zero in on uh, what is more and more specific. The bottom-up method, you start with something very specific and you build around that in an organic manner, just uh, spreading out ideas based on that. Now, with the bottom-up method, you start with one one thing, yeah. one noun. Person, place, thing, or idea. Just something. A good example is Dragonlance. If you can build all of Dragonlance around the idea that there are these dragon lances that are used to kill dragons. Now, I know that's a really simple-sounding statement, but uh, you got to consider what that builds on, okay? You've got... First off, we, we've just admitted there are dragons and that you would have reasons to kill them so they can be killed. And the weapon used to kill them is a lance, which is not typically a weapon one uses on foot. I mean, you know, I guess if we're talking about a pike, you could be talking about like a pike lance or something like that. But most often people think of mounted combat with lances. So... Are we, are we, we're, we're tilting against dragons, you know? Are and you riding a dragon? You're riding a dragon, right. You ride a dragon, you fight with these dragon lances. And right there, you, you immediately start building some story based on one important thing, you know, one specific thing. An example you were talking about earlier, James Sunderland. Yes, in Silent Hill 2, 
you're introduced to the character of James Sunderland. He's a guy. Where is he? He's on the outskirts of Silent Hill. What object does he have? He has this letter from his wife who died three years ago. What's the idea that you're going behind? He's going to find out how his dead wife wrote a letter. And there you have the setup to this wonderful horror game. All built around this one immediate thing. In fact, the bottom-up methodology is the method most frequently employed in storytelling. Most of the time, you don't build a gigantic setting. I mean, consider, in the beginning, God created the universe, and this is generally considered a bad idea. No, uh, but, but again, the story really starts out with Arthur Dent, right? If we're talking about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, we start out with Arthur Dent. And we start out with this one man who's at a house, and he finds out one of his friends was an alien. And that everything he thought was important doesn't matter because the universe is a vast, enormous place. Anytime that you start reading a new fiction series, you're often introduced to the main character. Harry Dresden, the only wizard in the Yellow Pages in Chicago. That right there is an amazing start to a great story. It is a immediate detail that you build on, and this can be used as a world-building method, and that's how the bottom-up methodology works. You start with some specific setting thing, well, some specific object, and build your world around that. Again, by playing mostly a game of yes and, you know? Well, let's, let's try this right now. Sure. Let's start with a place. Let's start with the capital city of Ardent. Okay, Ardent. Ardent to me sounds like a place that is very insular. So it's this insular capital city, sort of like the Forbidden City in China. It is the capital, but at the same time, it's, it's up above the rest of it and separated from the rest of the, uh, of the society, right? And let's have a character. There is a traveler who just came to town. He is a man cloaked in furs with a long beard and wild eyes. That's certainly unusual because Ardent is a very civilized place. So this is an unusual traveler from lands far abroad. He says, where is the gong of Z? Okay, I already want to know what this is. What, what is this gong? Well, the Gong of Z, no one here actually knows. For some reason, this traveler thought that the Gong was in the, the city of Ardent, and now he has to gather up people to go and find where it is and why he believes that the Gong was here. And why is it important? That's another very good question about this Gong. I guess this Gong must be something that can stop a disaster? Just throwing that out there as a possibility. And there's our idea. An impending disaster. Armageddon. On the clock, you have the beginning of your world. You can start fleshing out all these different things. Well, this traveler is clearly uh, wearing clothes and furs from none of the countries around, from none of the cities nearby. No, he is a traveler who has traveled far and wide. You have the city of Ardent. Well, that is the capital city, so it... So, yeah, you have a nation around it right there. So already we're in a nation. This is a traveler who's from so far away that he's not recognizable, and he was convinced that this gong was in our dent. No one knows about it. So maybe it's some sort of state secret. Maybe it has been some sort of state secret. I mean, I'm already kind of building ideas based on this, and it's it's actually a very easy and organic process when you want to, when you want to build. You just have to let yourself... 
uh, actually ask these questions and move through these things. And like I said, the bottom-up method is actually the most common method of storytelling. And you'll see that in television series and graphic novels. A lot of times we're left to initially piece together the setting. We're not explicitly told how everything works. We just start to piece it together based on information we see as things go on. John and I are running a Changeling the Lost game. And when we started figuring out what story we wanted to tell, we actually used an interesting combination of top down and bottom up. We started with this location, the cereal box. It's a place where the true fae cannot hunt changelings. We started with characters. Where were they? They were on a train coming into town. We started with an object. Each character had a postcard written by a man known as Matthew Kingman, the King of Spring, inviting them all to this wonderful little town. And there was this idea, this idea of hope, this idea of starting over, this idea of strangers in a strange land, starting new, making your way in this new world. Yeah, and we built on that a lot. And, and the entire idea came from that specific meltdown of what we wanted the campaign to begin with. That was our starting point. We, we agreed, okay, this is where it starts. Where can it go from here? What are the uh, possible ways? We did, however, have the overarching world of Changeling the Lost to work on. We made some minor variations and changes to how the expected cosmology of the world of darkness works, but we did have that uh, overarching shell. Again, this top-down, was also in place. So together we were able to make a campaign based on that. And a lot of times, um, a lot of times the most important part of these processes, if you want to have a really fulfilling RPG, is to allow yourself the ability to make these creative choices and to leave yourself open to further creative choices. So let's... Let's kind of sum this up a little bit. We talked about a bunch of different methods for world building, but I, th I think that we should really kind of tell you what not to do when world building. The big things that I can think of are, well, don't sweat the details. Honestly, it's easy to get caught up on details and to not move on from them. One thing that, one thing that used to come up all the time when people would discuss old D&D modules is like, well, you know, how, how are the monsters living in these, in these areas like this? You know, it's just, you won't go into a room and there's three hobgoblins and you go into the next room and there's a bugbear and you go into the next room and there's an owlbear and you end up with this weird progression that doesn't quite make sense. And it's because it wasn't a world building process. It was just a process of placing these monsters for a fight. And there's the risk of getting too caught up on details. And then there's also the risk of being too pragmatic about ignoring details. Um, so what we're talking about is trying to make that balance between just absolutely like trying to figure out where the bathrooms are in the dungeon, which is largely unnecessary, and ignoring things so thoroughly that you never consider the fact that there's no way for this owlbear to physically get into this room because all the doors are too small for it, you know? You have to be able to know what's important and know what's not important. Uh, another thing to not do is don't worry about having to be clever. Don't worry about this major focus on I have to be original in every single piece of this world. Well, that's the thing is I think I think a lot of people mistake being clever for being original and mistake being original for being good. Because uh, 
you can be very original and not have any good or interesting ideas. Originality is not automatically interesting. And unoriginality, um, I, I don't even like the word unoriginal because like, that's not what I'm talking about. George R. R. Martin is, by all reasonable measures, unoriginal. Like, name something that's not that hasn't been done before in, in all of A Game of Thrones, in all of the Song of Fire and Ice. The, the major story arc of A Song of Fire and Ice is just a retelling of the War of the Roses. Yes, down to some major characters that can be like direct analogs of historical figures. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think, I, I honestly don't think that any reasonable person will say, even if they don't like it, that George R. R. Martin's work is bad. Uh, Tolkien's work, likewise, built on a lot of World War One anxiety and other sort of industrialized society anxiety that was kind of coming to a head in the era in which he wrote it. Those are all things that built on ideas that already existed. We just had an episode where we were talking about retelling classic stories, right? Even E. Gary Gygax, his original setting of Greyhawk was kind of laid over a map of the United States. Yeah. A big thing is that being original does not mean that you have pulled every idea you have whole cloth from the void, just magically. It's it's not how originality works. Originality is being able to put an interesting spin on things, being able to tell us a story that we want to hear. And it's not just being clever all the time and that's the thing is there's also this this some people some writers some uh storytellers have this relentless desire to be continually clever and sometimes that can just get tedious if you have a relentless drive to be continuously clever it can take away from your ability to tell an interesting story if everything has to be a pithy one-liner. In fact, there have been movies recently where this, this is feeling like more and more of an issue where, where uh, films will be panned because they, they are just a continuous, ongoing set of pithy one-liners and there's no actual content to it. Um, I felt I felt that uh, some of the recent Bond films have been that way, actually. Uh, I can kind of agree with you there. It's this this relentless desire to have every moment be a clever, and you lose an aspect of storytelling in relentlessly trying to chase that dragon of getting your audience to always concede that, yeah, that was clever, that was clever, that was clever, that was... And it just turns into this vicious, tedious cycle of trying to be clever. So being original is not the same as just making stuff up, and it's also not the same as just being clever all the time. There's nothing wrong with having a world setting where the king hires the adventurers to go out and defeat the Dark Paladin and his dragon. There is nothing wrong with that, and in fact can be amazing fun and can be original without necessarily being the most original story ever. Tropes exist for a reason. There, there's a reason that all of these things speak to us as a society, as people. We have stories that we tell over and over because those stories resonate with us. So don't be afraid to have elements of that in your setting. It doesn't make you unoriginal. It doesn't make your setting bad. Um, what matters is that you have an interesting story to tell and that you have the ability to tell that story. 
the last thing about world building that you really need to keep in mind is to have fun with it. If you're having fun coming up with this world, then when you explain it to the players that you're going to be playing with, they will latch on to that fun that you were having. They will notice your excitement and start getting excited as well. Yeah, it's always easier to get excited about something when you can tell that the person who's talking to you about is exciting. I know know that sometimes that can be over the top. I mean, you know, everybody's met a fanboy or a fangirl in their time that was just uh, absolutely relentless about their fandom. And that can, can grate on you. But we've also met that person who tries to tell you something in a you know monotone and, and get you hyped up and interested in it, despite the fact that their pitch is terrible and nothing about this sounds appealing. In fact, actually, I think that's why history books suck, isn't it? A little bit. They... You know, I mean, like, well, think about every ad- adaptation of history that's been done for, like, television. What do they end up being? They end up being these story and character focused things right mm-hmm. i mean even even in like history channels world war Two, it ends up you know like they don't just talk about like statistics at normandy what they end up telling you is stories from like normandy beach or from uh operation market garden all of these different things that happened because we don't want to hear about the broad strokes we want to hear about the stories we want to have something we can relate to so let's see. Up next, it says we have micro RPGs. Yeah, micro RPGs. That's something that I've wanted to discuss for a while. I think we've even alluded to it before. Uh, micro RPGs are, of course, uh, small RPGs, typically page or two, sometimes a whole book, but most of the time, very small contained RPGs that can be played in one or two sittings, not usually intended to be a large campaign. There are a lot of these out there. Some of them are pretty wild. Some of them are pretty crazy. Some of them are uh, pretty cool. Uh, We've played several, and we'd like to discuss what it is about these games that makes them compelling and interesting. And also, I do hope that we will will be revisiting world building another time, right? Oh, yeah. We have so much to talk about. We've got a lot to talk about with this. I'm I'm looking down, I'm like, oh, well, we're at 30-some minutes already uh, of our 30-minute podcast, so. (laughs) And I feel like I've touched on maybe half of the things I wanted to talk to about this, so, you know. So, anyway, yeah, so that's, that's Save versus Rant, yep. All right, so thank you all very much for listening. This tremendous world I have inside of me. How to free myself and this world without tearing myself to pieces. And rather tear myself into a thousand pieces than be buried with this world within me. Franz Kafka. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at saveversusrant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.